Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, thanks for everybody who prayed for me. I was away this week at a pastor's conference, and I got to just share with um, a couple hundred pastors. And it's amazing after the last couple years that we've had to kind of be in a room with a bunch of other leaders and really realize that, like, we're not alone. It's pretty encouraging um, that we're not the only ones who have had to walk through a lot of kind of the, the shifting tectonic plates under our feet on almost every single topic. Uh, so that was really encouraging. So thank you so much for all of you who did pray. Um, if you didn't pray for me, uh, you missed out. I, mean, I guess you could retroactively pray. God is not bound by space and time or just kidding. All right, so back, back into Proverbs. Who's enjoying Proverbs so far? Yeah, good. 11 of you, good. Um, I've really been enjoying it because I do think that with the kind of onslaught of information over the last couple of years of just like, what is happening? What should I believe? What can I believe? What deep state, dark part of the internet should I go to to figure out what to believe? Like, like it's just been this constant craziness with information. And we've realized that over Proverbs, information is not the same as wisdom. We've been exploring that. What I want us to do today as we lean into Proverbs, we're, we're going to do something similar that we've been doing. Rather than just kind of park on one verse, remember, kind of Proverbs is like a bunch of tweets, right? It's just a whole bunch of tweets, on, and they're kind of sp splattered all over the place. So we're going to have kind of a, another smattering of verses. Smattering. It's a great word, yeah. Um, another smattering of verses that we're going to look. But I want to start with a question before we jump in. And the question is this. How do you feel about how you feel? right now. Just take stock on your week. Maybe take stock of the last 24 hours. Currently, what is your emotional dashboard saying? How do you feel about how you feel? Maybe carefree. Maybe you're coming in here very carefree this morning. Maybe some of us are numb. Maybe we don't even know how to answer that question. Maybe we're stressed. Maybe we feel like everything is outside of our control. And it's causing us anxiety. Maybe we're distracted. Day to day, I think, it's actually hard as a skill to develop the ability to stop and think about how we feel. Actually take stock of our dashboard and pay attention to how we feel, but also why we feel the way we feel. Emotions are one of the most complicated things that we all experience, yet they're so hard to define. Right? If you had to like define emotions, you're like, well, it's like something like I feel. You're like, yeah, but it's like something that happens in my body. You're like, yeah. It's like, oh, something that happens to me when something happens to me. You're like, yeah. Right? So like defining emotions and getting like a really firm understanding of what emotions even are is already hard enough, let alone how do I process and approach the emotions that I am feeling. We don't quite know what they are, but we all feel them. What's crazy about it is that emotions aren't something we do. Often there's something that happened to us, amen? And we don't really even know sometimes where they come from or why they came. They happen to us, but they also happen in us. Emotional responses are like psychosomatic. They just, they're just automatic sometimes. We don't decide, I'm going to be sad now. I'm going to feel lost now. I'm going to be happy now. I'm going to be anxious now. Like anybody this week was just like, you know what I want to do this week? I want to feel really anxious. Like, none of us did that. But if we're honest, maybe that was some of our week. I, I just felt so anxious, heavy, burdened. And I don't know why. Alistair Groves and Winston Smith wrote a book called Untangling Emotions. A lot of what we're going to talk about today comes out of that book. But also, if you've been around, we did a series a couple years ago, literally before COVID hit, called Feel Free. And it was about emotional maturity. If you want to go back and revisit that, this would be a good time, especially if you feel like some, some of what we talk about today speaks to you and you find, find it encouraging. I would encourage you to do that. But they wrote a book called Untangling Emotions, and they capture exactly what we're, we're starting with here. Listen, emotions are strange. Some of us, that's, that's already a relief, right? You're just like, okay, good, good. Emotions are strange. They're strange in that they can make us behave in ways we don't want to. Anyone? Strange in that they can flood through our bodies whether we like it or not. Strange in that they can help us see and do things we would never have done without them. Strange in that most of us don't know or even stop to ask why we are feeling what we are feeling most of the time. It's like this constant floating strangeness of emotions. 
And it's a biological and neurological fact that we are all emotional beings. Some of us grew up kind of being aware of the Myers-Briggs. Anybody? Myers-Briggs? Psychology students, yeah? And it like categorizes everyone into either thinking or feeling. Now that's not what the Myers-Briggs is doing necessarily. Of course we all feel. We're all emotional creatures. But some of us, like we did like a Myers-Briggs test and then we're like, I'm thinking. And then the rest of our life we're like, emotions bad, robot good. You know, like that kind of thing. That was my best robot. (laughs) That's not exactly true at all about what it means to be human. To be human is to be emotional. Like the the most popular sci-fi trope, sci-fi fans, the most popular sci-fi trope is that there is a difference between AI and robots and humans. And what is it? Emotions. Consciousness. The ability to feel and actually have a moral and ethical quality to why we feel what we feel. To feel is to be human. Harvard did a huge study a few years ago and they put people through crazy amounts of stress and, and like hardship and challenge. And almost always, people had an emotional response before they had a rational one. Like we, we like to think that we're rational, especially in our secular kind of postmodern thing, right? We're just like, no, we're very rational. Therefore, we can just rationalize God out of the equation. And I'm very rational about everything. That's not actually true. All of us are actually emotional first and foremost before we're rational. And then what we do is we experience stuff and then we rationalize why we felt the way we feel or we excuse it or push it out. Anyone? Proverbs has a lot to say about how we process emotions. And remember, we've been looking at Proverbs with these two paths, right? These two highways of how we can actually go through life. There's one way to follow the voice of Lady Wisdom and go towards wisdom. Then there's another way to follow the voice of Lady Folly and go towards foolishness, which leads in destruction. And remember, Proverbs sits us down in the garden in front of two trees, taking of the tree of life, which is good, and it's based on who God is and what God has defined as good, right, true, beautiful. And then there's a counterfeit wisdom tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and we get to take for ourselves and define what is right and good and true and beautiful. And Proverbs sits us down in front of those two trees, and it has a lot to say about how to hear our emotions process them, and then live in light of them. And wisdom is integrated into that process. So here's a few verses. We'll throw them up here. This is just a few, okay? A few tweets from the wisdom of God, right? Proverbs 15, 13. A joyful heart makes a face cheerful, but a sad heart produces a broken spirit. 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict. Anyone? Anyone in our life? It's not you, of course. It's never us. But anybody in our life? We know those people? Okay. But one slow to anger calms strife. Actually, it's like calms conflict. 1530. Bright eyes cheer the heart. Good news strengthens the bones. 2528. A person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. That's really interesting. 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. That last verse is really interesting because it shows us the connection between a lack of self-control and foolishness and the development of self-control and wisdom. Sometimes the best thing is to just shut up. Like sometimes the best thing is to not give a hot take on Twitter and to jump onto every controversy and every single issue. Amen? Like wisdom sometimes means don't talk anymore. Just listen. Just pay attention. Stop talking. Stop thinking that, like, the world is our platform and our voice needs to be heard. And over the last couple years, we have seen entire churches, entire circles of the church think that that is our mission. But wisdom sometimes just, just is quiet. Foolishness always airs. Always just airs our opinion. Always just hot take, hot take, hot take, foolishness. There's some real wisdom in that. Now, Proverbs is not the only wisdom book in in, in Scripture. We know Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes also has a lot to say. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to process emotions. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. Hear that, Baptists? There's a time to dance. I got a verse for you, baby. (laughs) All the Pentecostals are like, amen. Fast forward to the New Testament, really interesting. The fruit of the Spirit... 
Okay, so again, we just like overly rationalize the Christian faith sometimes. We ignore stuff like this. But the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 includes emotional dispositions, right? And experiences like love, like joy, like peace, gentleness, and self-control. Those are emotional dispositions. But it also talks, contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the fruit of the what? The flesh. And it includes things like jealousy, a hot temper, fits of anger, and envy. To be emotional and to actually understand the dashboard of our life and our emotions is to be human. And emotional maturity, emotional wholeness, I think is one of the most neglected areas of discipleship in our contexts. Spiritual maturity and wholeness is central. Emotional maturity is central to our spiritual maturity. You cannot disconnect them. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment is, which, by the way, that's quite the question, right? You show up, you've got Jesus who's claiming to be God, come to, to save humanity, and you're like, what's the greatest one, though? Like, I know there's a lot in here, you know, but what's, like, the greatest commandment? Jesus, first, what does he say? Love the Lord with all your heart, emotional disposition, soul, mind, and strength. Christian growth and Christian maturity is a holistic process of learning to love God first and foremost, to order our loves correctly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we're honest, some of us only love the Lord or, or have been taught to love the Lord with our mind. Because maturity means how many Bible verses I can cram in, how many Christian songs I know, how many non-Christian movies I don't know, and those are all the good ones anyway, right? How many events I can show up to, and how long I've been at those events. I mean, I, I literally have talked to older saints, and they're like, I've been a Christian longer than you've been alive. And I'd say, yeah, but you're not mature. Right? Like, but, but like, that doesn't make you mature. That doesn't mean that you've actually learned how to holistically love the Lord with all your heart, your emotions, your soul, your identity, your mind, your thoughts, and your strength, your effort. That we would actually strive towards loving the Lord with our whole life. And that's the greatest commandment. Our affections, our passions, our desires, what we want, our identity, who we are, our strength, our energy, our effort, all of that. That's the goal of Christian maturity. We have to understand that when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's not just an invitation to become better. It's to become whole. It's to become whole. It's not just to do more Christian things and avoid non-Christian things more. It's, it's to actually do all of life. To walk with Jesus and allow Jesus to teach us how to be fully human. How to be whole. Fully alive. How to flourish in every area of our life. So, I think what we see all over scripture and something that's been neglected in our contexts because we've over-rationalized so much of it is that emotional awareness and health and maturity is central. Not just like an extra thing. It's like, oh yeah, I know you, you Bible counselors, you guys deal with that stuff, right? right? You know, there's like a little sec section of the church that kind of deals with emotions. We don't because we're like, we, we do theology. Like we just twist our mustaches in our, in our chairs and do theology because we don't do emotions, right? Because emotions are liars or whatever, right? Just like, what? No, it's actually central. Like it's essential to you individually as a follower of Jesus, but it's also central to the communities that we create. I think so much of the hurt and trauma and division that we've seen in the church over the last two years had almost nothing to do with theology and had almost everything to do with emotional unhealth. I just spent a week with 200 pastors who emotionally are broken and empty. Their theology is great. They're great leaders. They're great guys to be around. They've got good marriages. They're, they're repentant and dealing with sin. But emotionally, they're tapped and exhausted. Why? Because they've pastored churches of un, emotionally unhealthy and immature people. So church, listen. If you've never paid attention to your emotional dashboard... That's the invitation this morning, is that we're going to spend some time understanding the importance of it, but then we're going to try to actually practice this for a few minutes before we move on and go out, okay? Because I can tell you, it's when we ignore the relationship between emotional maturity and spiritual maturity that both our emotional maturity and our spiritual maturity suffer. It's Pete Scazzaro, this book is back in the bookstore if you haven't read it, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says exactly the same thing. He says emotional health 
and spiritual maturity are inseparable. Okay, do you believe that? It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Amen. And honestly, church, if we paid more attention to our emotional maturity and IQ and actually understanding why we're feeling what we're feeling and not justifying theological positions based on an emotional reaction, amen, come on, I'm preaching now, then we would be able to approach this far differently. And it's so important because if our definition of spiritual maturity, because again, we have really bad definitions of discipleship, I think. We have really bad definitions of spiritual maturity. What counts as spiritual maturity? It's like, oh, I dress like this and I've been in the church for 60 years. I know people like that that are not Christians. They're not even followers of Jesus. That's wild. Yeah, but I'm mature. Let me just like tack whatever version of maturity we want to the word mature. And it's like, no, no, but, but you're not. Like I, your relationships suffer because you're emotionally immature. Right? It's, it's so important and so vital because our definition of spiritual maturity must include emotional health and emotional maturity. Or else we won't grow where it matters most. And I think that relationships show us when we actually read our dashboard, our current relationship to self, to God, and to others. I think that's what our emotional maturity shows us. Some of us work out buffs, some of our gym, us gym rats. We know that the goal of physical health is what? Like physical health is to live well, right? To be healthy. But the goal of emotional health is to love well. It's to actually love things in the right order. It's to have our priorities in check. I think the air that we've made in the last few decades of maturity in Christian circles is that we have turned maturity into something that the Bible doesn't actually say is maturity. We've taken a definition of maturity and actually just made it legalism. Do this, say this, pray like this, kneel like this, sing like this, worship like this, and avoid all of these things. I'll give you the list, right? Don't smoke, you know, drink or chew or hang with those who do, uh, you know, right? And you just kind of go with all the, and it's like legalism means maturity. Like what? Like that, just moralism. Let's just, let's just heap moralism on there. And if you nail most of the moral checklist, maturity. And we've ignored entirely the importance of our emotional capacity to be in healthy relationship with ourself, with God and others. Isn't that kind of wild considering the whole point of the gospel, like the whole story of the redemptive history that we actually see and believe is that God relationally came and made himself proximate and available to us? Like the entire point of the gospel is relationship, healthy relationship between us and God because we're pardoned and we're not here as slaves, but we're free and we're adopted as sons and daughters. Like, like, that's that, like the whole point of the gospel is relationship. And then when we experience that vertical relationship, guess what we get to do? We get to go and live free and whole and flourish to our neighbors and show them that we know the king, but he also is our dad. It's the whole gospel. I think when we ignore emotional maturity, and it's easy to do, it really is, and just cover it up, just pray more. Read this Bible verse. Do this more. Don't do that. This is why we end up with so many people who follow Jesus but are just grumpy, hypercritical and judgmental. People who follow Jesus but are defensive and never can actually accept constructive criticism. People who follow Jesus and are crippled by addiction or destructive cycles. People who follow Jesus that have crippling anxiety and depression. People who follow Jesus that are never transparent and honest with themselves and others. All of that speaks to emotional capacity and health. Can't just throw Bible verses at that. Are you with me? Are you with me so far? So in Christian circles, we say things like facts over feelings. Which is really dumb. Right? Oh, faith. Faith over feelings. Just faith, faith over feelings, man. Hey, tell your feelings to get behind you. Don't follow your heart. Now listen, some of those things are half true, right? Okay, so just, I'll grant you that. They're not totally untrue, but they're only half true at best. Because the Bible teaches that both our minds, what we think and believe, and our emotions shape us. Both. Heart and mind. They both shape us, but here's the thing. They're both flawed. Both our feelings and our beliefs are flawed. Are you with me on that? Okay, both of them, not just one. So we can't just like 
rail on the emotions people, and we can't just rail on the over-rational, twisty, mustache theologian people. We got to rail on both of them because the Bible does. That's what we're about, amen? Okay, listen to what it, Scripture says about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who in the world can understand it? If our generation, especially anyone under 40, needs to hear anything, it's that. Is that all the feels and do you and be true to yourself and live your truth. The Bible warns us that that is a trust in your feelings and your emotions and your heart. And we're sick. And it will lead us to destruction. But it's an equal warning and caution of those who would only trust their minds. That we would trust, you know, our rational thinking, and, and again, that's our secular age, but even in the church, it, this has taken over too. Theology, Bible verses. I know more Bible verses than you. It's like, yeah, but if you're a jerk, no one wants to hear what you have to say. Right? Here's what Scripture says, a couple verses on our minds, and these are from Proverbs. Watch, Proverbs 28.6. Whoever trusts their own minds is a fool. And all the pastors said, amen. That is literally pastoral ministry. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads to death. So scripture is very balanced on this. It says that we need a renewed heart and mind. We need both. Jeremiah 17, 10 makes this point. Listen to this. I, the Lord, examine the mind and I test the heart. To give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Do you see the holistic picture there of what the Lord is looking at and examining? So church, here's the invitation as we look at this. Our invitation is to join the Lord who examines both our heart and our mind. Amen? That we would enter in, that we would feel at peace, that Lord, listen, maybe there's some scary stuff down there. Maybe there's some scary things in my heart, in my emotional world right now. Maybe there's some scary things in my mind and, and what I'm believing and what I'm thinking. Maybe there's some lies that have just been completely entrenched in there. Maybe there's lies I believe about myself and it's leading to, to a sickness of emotion inside of me. And the Lord says, join me because I'm the one who tests and examines the heart and the mind. Isn't that beautiful that he's already there, church? Like, like, he's already there. He's already there examining our heart and mind. There's nothing that you're going to, there's no stone you're going to unturn where he's going to go, <gasps> what? That was, I was busy doing this over here with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What? No, no, there's nothing. There's nothing there because he's already there. He's beat us there. And we can't separate those two things, our heart and our mind. So here's, what, here's the two ditches, okay? Here's the two ditches we want to avoid. We want to avoid making too much of emotions, and we want to avoid making too little of emotions. Okay? The kind of emotions are nothing crowd. See emotions as an interruption to daily life. So we're very stoic, right? It's like very stoic, emotions bad, I'm a rational creature, I'm very smart. Usually, usually these people are very smart, or think they are, right? So they like, look how smart I am, I'm very rational, okay? Emotions lie, emotions are liars, they can't be trusted, so I just silence them, I muzzle them. Uh, men, I don't know why this has become a thing, but like, a, like a, a, key, a key thing of manhood is like, I don't feel, I don't cry. You know what that's led to? I'll tell you, because I'm a product of it. A whole bunch of men in the next generation who have no idea how to feel because we've been told that we shouldn't feel. And trust me, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm not a thinker. I'm a feeler. I just feel. I just feel through life, right? Just gut. I just feel through everything, okay? But I was like, we don't cry. We don't process. We don't sit with our emotions. Thank God. He gave me an amazing wife that's just like, that's dumb. Here's what we're going to do now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay, but do you see that? Because what happens is that whole emotions are nothing or emotions are, are liars kind of creeps into the church too. Because then we have suspicion of emotions, Right? Anyone who didn't grow up in the charismatic movement anywhere, we're just like emotions, no, you can't trust them. It's like, really? At all? Like God doesn't speak through emotions? God doesn't use emotions? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. We got like 66 books right here that beg to differ. That he actually calls for emotional, holistic experience of who he is. He does speak through emotions. But this kind of view has become suspicious of emotions. They're not from God. They lie to us. So then we see every negative emotion maybe as a failure to trust God. That's some of you. Some of you came up in a tradition where you're now punitive about your own emotions. Right? 
Because maybe you're mourning or grieving or walking through a season of depression or anxiety and you're like, if only I trusted God's sovereignty more. Because you still think that rational thinking is the way to actually disciple our emotions. Scripture shows us that's not the case. We need maturity and growth in both our emotions and our thinking. Okay, but the emotions are everything crowd. This one's equally dangerous. So again, we got two ditches, okay? I always love how like we just talk about one ditch and then like over, like just blow up the severity of one ditch. We're just like, oh, the liberals, the left. They're getting the, li- the libs, man. And you're like, really? What about hyper-fundamentalist tone-deaf righties? Nothing? They're digging them. That's cool. Weird. We got two ditches on every single topic, church. Let's be better. That was free. Ready? Emotions are everything, people. Emotions are everything, people. We live life every day, all day, is driven by how we feel. Anyone? Okay, literally. Our decisions, our relationships, what we do, what we don't do, what we cancel. Events we decide not to attend. (coughs) Are completely driven by how we feel and what we feel. In church, that comes in where we elevate emotional experiences and emotional experience become God's presence. We have entire movements that there's documentaries about now. Won't mention any names. Where emotions actually are the God that's worshipped, not God. And our emotional experiences dictate who God is and how we relate to him. Entirely. So in church, that means that the sermon, the goal of the sermon is to what? Is to feel convicted or encouraged. Say, God, Pastor, I didn't really like your sermon. I didn't really feel. It's just like, great. Well, the sermon wasn't about you. So, oops, right? Songs. I didn't really like this. I didn't really feel like, like, I didn't feel like worshiping today. Right? Like creeps into church all over the place. I didn't, you know, community. I don't know. Like, I I didn't like feel connected in the, like in the group. So I just, or the goal of worship. The goal of worship is to feel a rush Right, like mountaintop experiences. Like sens- everything's got to be sensational. Like if, if we didn't feel sensational, God must have been absent. I got some Bible verses for you. One of my favorite is Elijah. And he's looking for God in like the, the mountains and the fire and the earthquake and all that. And guess where he is? He's in the still, small voice. In Hebrew, it's he's in the thin silence. So we've got to be careful to avoid both of those ditches because all through the Bible, heart and mind are tied together. Proverbs 27, 19, as water reflects the face of a man, so the heart of a man reflects the man. That's pretty wild. Considering what that verse says is that your emotional health is actually who you are. Wow. Your ability to read the dashboard of your emotional life and then live accordingly is actually who you are. It's pretty wild. Proverbs 4.23, guard and keep your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Your emotional maturity will determine the course of your life. All of us can have, all of us have an example of a time where we did not actually process our emotions well and we acted before we processed them. Amen? And what has that usually done? Not, not, nothing great, right? (laughs) Not, not great at all. Or... We've, again, not engaged in relationships because our emotions have driven us to shut down or, or pull back or withdraw. Our emotions really do dictate so much of how we live and the relationships we have. So, spiritual maturity can only happen when we invite God into all of our feelings with no filter. The only reason I can say that is because Jesus did. Like when you think about Jesus, some of us just have this idea of Jesus as very like Zen-like kind of like Spock-like, unemotional, like he just floated, right? Like he just kind of like, just floated and taught, and then he like floated away, and he like floated across the water, and then he like floated in the boat and boated backwards. I don't know why, but you know what I mean? Like we just have this idea, yet, watch this, this is wild. I'll tell you all the emotions Jesus felt. Ready? He felt compassion. He felt anger. In the Greek, there's, Times where Jesus is furious. He was consumed with zeal. He was passionate. He was greatly troubled. He was distressed. He was sorrowful. We just sang about the man of sorrows. He was depressed. Jesus experienced depression. He was deeply moved. 
He was grieved. He sighed. I love that. It's just like Jesus like, <sighs> probably looked better than that. Like it was more Jesus-y, but he sighed. He slept. He rested. He groaned. He was surprised. He was overjoyed. He was amazed and he was full of joy. They're all just plucked right out of what we have about Jesus. Imagine. So some of us, again, you have this picture, this image of Jesus, of this this non-emotional theologian, which, by the way, he's always criticizing those cats. I don't know if you missed that. Like the Pharisees who have no ability to empathize with anybody because they're so emotionally dysfunctional. He's always criticizing those guys. And Jesus felt a full spectrum of emotions yet perfectly. If he did that, we have permission to do it too. He's not running away from that. He's not waiting for us in prayer to come and be like, Jesus, I'm anxious. And he's like, don't you know Philippians 4? (laughs) I'm walking through a season of depression. Oh, I got some Bible verses for you, baby. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus experienced the full spectrum of emotions and then invited us to follow him. To experience all of them, the full spectrum, highs and lows, mountaintops and valleys. Matthew 26 is probably my favorite in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of the crucifixion. Jesus is, quote, troubled and overwhelmed with sorrow. Jesus doesn't have a Zen moment in the garden. He doesn't do a lotus pose and a downward dog and say, it doesn't matter if I live or die. He doesn't turn on Hillsong and just be like, hmm. He's, he's grieved, like he's troubled, he's overwhelmed with sorrow because he is about to take the sin of the world on his shoulders and he's afraid and he asks the father if there's another option. Just something else we could do because I'm not feeling the plan right now. Yet he goes through it anyway. Jesus meets his emotions head on, experiences the full spectrum of them and then processes them perfectly. It's pretty amazing. Emotional health and maturity doesn't mean being happy all the time. I think this is the thing we got to get rid of. Jesus wasn't. Like this kind of like Ned Flanders smile all the time. Nice. Everyone's so nice and smiley. Right? It says, highly doodly, neighborooney. <laughs> like that, that's not even how Jesus was. And we're supposed to follow Jesus. The emotionally mature and healthy response to life sometimes is anger. It's sorrow. It's grief. That's that healthy response sometimes. We need to give ourselves permission to feel that. So emotional maturity can only happen if we actually are able to read the dashboard of our inner life and then make that correspond with our outer life. Connect them well, right? So what I like to do is think about emotions like a language. Some of us are bilingual or trilingual. I'm not even going to tell you how many languages Allison knows because you'll feel so insecure about yourself. That's why she's just like, oh, English. She's like, I had like 11 options, so English. (laughs) Speaking of feelings. (laughs) Emotions are like a language that we actually need to learn to understand. We need to understand what's being said by our emotional life. And we can grow or ignore it and not actually grow. Like that's that's the point. So the dashboard all day is that your emotions are saying something. It's saying something about your character. It's saying something about your desires. It's saying something about your identity. Emotions are saying something about your hopes and your fears and your expectations of yourself and others. Your emotions speak about all of that. That's pretty major, right? That's a big deal. All day, every day, your emotions say something about you and what is important to you. Your emotions speak about that stuff. And in a real way, I think, honestly, to understand how we feel is to understand who we are. Not not just by itself in a vacuum, but ultimately to understand how we're feeling and why we're feeling the way we are will help us get to who we are. I think emotions help us identify who we are in the moment as well. Like, you know, I just acted so out of character. You know, I just flew off the handle. It's like, no, that's who you are. That's who you are. It's it's there. That's why it came out of you. Right? And Jesus always corrects us there. He's like, no, no, it's not everyone else's fault. It's not the libs, it's not that bad pastor, it's not that ugly neighbor, it's not, it's not, it's you. It's your heart. It's your heart. That's the problem. Let's deal with that first. Then we'll start to see the fruit of that, right? 
Tremper Longman III, which has to be the best name in human history. An Old Testament scholar, he, uh, he's written a bunch of commentaries. Um, but here's, here's what he said. Listen, he was processing some stuff in the Psalms, writing a commentary for the Psalms. That's what he says here. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. Oof. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. That could just be the sermon, right? We could just close. But I think he's exactly right. Like the depth of that. So how do we hear emotions well? This is not original to me. This is from the book, Untangling Emotions, that I referenced earlier. But they have a whole process of how to engage emotions. I would encourage you to pick that book up um, if, if, you, if you find this helpful. But they have a whole process about how to engage. So not to ignore, not to distort, not to push them away, but to actually engage emotions. There's four things they identify. First is that you need to identify what you are feeling. Some of us can't even do that. I had to learn this. I had no idea what I was feeling. And it took people around me that loved me enough to be like, no, no, but what is it? And I'm just like, I don't know, I just meh, meh. No, no, that's not an emotion. Meh is not an emotion. I don't know, blah. Like I would make noises. That would be my, like the extent of my ability to tell you how I felt was noises. And it's like, how do you feel? I'm like, woohoo! It's like, no, <laughs> right? We have to be able to identify what it is that we're feeling. Not judging whether the emotion is right or not yet. Okay, we have to actually have an honest, I'm feeling this, and to actually be honest about it. We don't want to silence or amplify our emotions before we understand what they're actually saying. That's the point there about how to actually identify what we're feeling. You got to name it. You got to be like, I am feeling blank. Like fill it in, actually say it, not just make noises. Now that's easier for some of us and harder for some of us based on where we are on this journey. Why are you so upset? What's wrong? How do you feel are difficult questions for some of us. Others of us, that's like our whole jam. We love it. Someone asks us how we're feeling. We're like, yes, I have prepared for this moment. And you're, you're just ready, you know. Usually you're extroverts as well. But you can't engage something and understand something that we don't know is there. And I think that's, that's really important. The first step is to actually name it. This is a practice all throughout scripture. Throughout Psalms, we see questions being asked of why are you cast down my soul? Like, like what, what's going on in me, right? Like, like, why is there turmoil within me? God, search me and know my heart, test me and know my thoughts. That's an invitation to actually identify what I'm feeling. Uh, Jonah is another example. He's outraged when Nineveh turns to God. Because remember, he's, he's decided who is in and who is out. And, and Jonah's just like, what? Like them? Come on, not them. And God shows up and goes, do you have a right to be angry about this? Let's talk about this. Let's figure out what you're actually feeling here. Because it's not actually anger that Jonah's feeling first and foremost. Anger is always a secondary emotion. So God is pushing him deeper to be like, what are you actually experiencing here? Right? Elijah, after an intense conflict with Jezebel, not a good choice for a girlfriend. He's depressed and sulking and he asks God to end him. He is suicidal in God's presence going, I don't even want to live anymore. And God goes, what led you to this place? Wow. Identify it. First step towards emotional maturity is actually hearing what our emotions are saying. And it's important because emotions don't just tell us how we feel. Emotions tell us what we believe. I think that emotions actually point to the dominant story that we believe more than anything. Okay, and we all know this. Around Reach Montreal, we've talked about this a lot. But that we are story-shaped creatures. There's a whole part in the homo sapiens brain that is unique among all other creatures. And it's the part, it's our story making and creation part of our brain. 
Like if we don't know how to exist without creating stories and writing stories and living in stories. You and I will always, when given a choice to just believe something or tell a story and live in it, we'll choose the latter. And it's not a surprise because the average Canadian consumes four hours of storytelling content per day. Whether that's TV, movies, social media, video games, books, whatever it is, we live in story. We can't help ourselves. Some experts actually say that over a course of our life, we actually spend more time in fantasy than in reality. That's wild. So stop ragging on the metaverse when you do it too, boomers. All day, every day, we tell stories about ourselves and others. Like this. Why didn't they call us back right away? And then what do we do? Well, we write a story. I know why. Right? We start writing a story about motive. We start writing a story about value. Oh, oh, that's because my view of our friendship is higher than their view of this friend. Oh, when I see them next time. Oh, yeah. Like, nothing happened other than they didn't text us back immediately. And we've written like an entire Spielberg movie as to why that was the case. Am I the, I'm, I'm not the only one. Come on now. Why did they look at us like that? Why did so-and-so say that? What did somebody mean by that emoji? All it takes is an emoji, baby. Like that's literally it. It's like, well, it was the smiley face, but not the one with the rosy cheeks and the happy hands. Huh. <laughs> We tell stories all day about coworkers, about our spouses, about our friends, about our neighbors, about strangers, and about God. Now that's not bad in and of itself, but our, the work that we have to do is determining if those stories actually line up with reality. Because Jesus invites us and said, come and know the truth because it's what? It's the truth that will set you free. It's living in reality that will set us free. It's living aligned with what is true objectively, that will set us free. There was a famous experiment done in 1944. If you're part of REACH, you've seen this. I used this a few years ago. I'm going to show it to you again. Famous experiment by two German specialists called Heider and Simmel in 1944. And they had 120 people in a room, and they showed them this video. I'll show it to you in a second. And then they asked, what did you see? Okay, watch. Out of the 120 people that saw this, three of them gave the rational response. There's triangles and sticks moving around a white screen. Those are the Spock-like people. Sociopaths, probably, right? Like, (laughs) doing weird stuff with squirrels in the backyard. 117 out of 120 people did what? They told a story. How many of you wanted to punch the big triangle in its triangular throat? Right? How many of you wanted to celebrate when they got away? You're just like, yeah. Right? I was holding in just now while we watched it, but I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Get them. Right? How many of you wanted to become a triangle and get in there and beat up the big triangle? 
But what was really interesting about that study is that out of the 117 people that told the story, they were all completely different stories. That speaks to the ability of our mind to craft stories. Even if we're not, we don't fancy ourselves a creative, right? Some of us are like, oh, I'm a creative. It's just like, no, no, but we all are. We all create. Why? Because we're wired to. We're wired to take the raw materials we've been entrusted with and build it and construct it and create things. Narrative is actually stitched into the fabric of who we are. And I think that our emotions often flow from the stories we tell ourselves. And if we would become more attentive to the stories that we're telling ourselves, we would also be able to hear what our emotions are saying. Pete Scazzaro, one more time, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says this. The stories we tell ourselves have an enormous impact on our feelings. Consider the difference of what goes on in your mind when a friend who agrees to meet you for dinner is 40 minutes late. How different are your feelings when you tell yourself maybe he had an accident while driving here? Or this relationship is clearly more important to me than it is to him. Our feelings are closely related to the story we tell ourselves about the things that are going on around us. So that's the first thing. The invitation is to actually identify what you are feeling and the stories that you're telling. Second step, examine why you are feeling that. Look at it, turn it around. Be like, I'm angry right now and I don't understand why. So let me turn it around. Let me try to figure out what led up to this. Why am I angry? Don't just dismiss it. Don't just binge Netflix. Don't just doom scroll to try to like just numb it. It's like, no, no, I'm going to stop. I'm going to invite God into this. Why? Because he's already there. He's already examining my heart and my mind. I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to study it. I'm going to ask and I'm going to say, what is this emotion telling me? What am I reacting to? Why am I angry? Where is it coming from? When did I start feeling this? What led to me feeling this? And then then what dominant story lies behind this and is it true? Those are so important, those questions. Lamentations 340 says, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. There's something about repentance and returning to the Lord that requires self-examination. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And test yourselves. We spend all day testing everybody else and examining everyone else and writing stories about everyone else's motives and we don't slow down long enough to examine ourselves. So we're feeling angry. An example, you're feeling angry. You're angry. You examine it and you realize it's actually because of something a coworker said earlier that day and it caused you to pull back and retreat for the rest of the day from people. You canceled an event later that day because of that comment. And you haven't actually spoken about it yet or figured out the story behind it or spoken to the person who said it. So now you're left with anger and you don't know why. To examine our emotions is to deal with them. That's the second step. Third, evaluate the good and bad of what you're feeling. Okay, rarely are emotions only good or bad. We gotta be careful with that. We do this all the time. We only, everything's either or because we live in this Western polar moment of there's no such thing as a nuanced middle. I don't know why, it's weird. But very rarely are emotions, either good or bad alone. They're always a mix of good, godly, or destructive, selfish aspects in there. Always. And it's our job to evaluate and kind of get in there and sift through it. Example would be like, it's okay to feel angry because something that was said to me hurt me. But when my anger starts leading to thoughts of retaliation or saying hurtful things, then my emotions have actually gone out of control. We need to evaluate the good and the bad and weigh them out and figure out where we are. And fourth and finally, then act. Many of us, we act right away. Like there's no process from feeling something to acting. Like we act and it's lit, we, we, are, we are a walking exposed nerve, right? All of our actions, good and bad, destructive and helpful, are just based on how we feel. And there's no process of like actually identifying it, evaluating it, weighing it out, figuring it out, and then acting. But notice they said that the fourth step is acting. Because it's only after you've identified what you're feeling, why you're feeling it, and you have evaluated the good and bad of that feeling that you're actually ready to act. And family, I would say, that's what Proverbs says about the wise person. 
that we're able to actually walk that process out. The foolish, right? We read those verses at the beginning. The foolish person is just an exposed nerve, flies off the handle, says nonsense, anger, fits of anger, whatever it is, insensitive, right? Just a walking exposed nerve that leads to foolishness. It's folly. A new heart that comes from experiencing the wisdom of God is what allows us to align our strongest desires with our deepest desires. Jesus' strongest desire in the Garden of Gethsemane was to find another way. His strongest desire in that moment was, God, there's got to be another way. That was his strongest desire. But what was his deepest desire? To lay his life down for the sins of the world. And I think emotional maturity helps us understand and hear the difference between our strongest desire in the moment and our deepest desire throughout life. And that's what wisdom does. Strongest desire connected to our deepest desires, how we know that we're growing in, in emotional maturity. So, leave you with this. To engage our emotions, I think, like Tremper Longman says here, is to actually engage God. And some of you are not being conformed into the image of Christ because you're not engaging God where it matters most, and that's in your emotional life. And in your emotional lack of maturity. Your emotions are disconnected or you've believed a lie about where your emotions belong in your relationship to God, but engaging our emotions means engaging God. It's not a step in a process, but it's the goal of the entire process of discipleship. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust in the Lord at all times and pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Hear me. If we do not pour our hearts out before God, we will pour our hearts out somewhere else. And if we have seen anything over the last couple years, it has been a, just a volcanic lava rush of emotions and pouring our opinion and heart out on stuff all over everyone else. And in the process, we have destroyed relationships, we have burnt bridges, we have destroyed entire communities, we have destroyed churches. The wise person knows how to sift through that and connect their strongest desire and their deepest desire. So here's what we're gonna do. Before we kind of jump right back into just worship and responding and closing, we're gonna engage our emotions. We're gonna return to the question I started with is how do you feel about how you feel? Like right now, this week, today, the last 24 hours, and no filter, raw, bringing them to the Lord. And then we'll sing and we'll respond. But I think that Smith and Groves in Untangling Emotion leave us with this. This is where I'll leave you. The only reason we ever fail to dash toward the Lord with any of our emotions is that we aren't completely convinced it's worth it. Is that you? The most common reason we escort our emotions elsewhere is that it never occurs to us to take them to God. We don't trust him with our emotions because he seems irrelevant or we assume we ought to get our act together before going to him. So, how can we engage our emotions this morning and God? What part of the process do you struggle with the most? What makes it hard for you to bring your emotions to God? Where is that kind of stopgap for you? What stories have you been telling yourself that have not allowed you to actually pour your heart out before the Lord? So just take a minute now, we're gonna engage our emotions. My prayer is that as we engage our emotions, we bring them to God and we actually experience God. So as you pray quietly or just out loud, you know, use words like, God, I want. God, I feel. God, I know. And pour your heart out before the Lord. Let's do that now.